the new CEO of FTX should be asking Sam, where is that billion dollars that you put in these accounts to self-insure your customers for just this kind of eventuality, which you're acting like, you know, is never going to happen. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Thursday, December 29. Today, Bill Cohan is here to talk about a new twist in the Sam Bankman-Fried saga, a lost interview that could provide new ammunition for prosecutors. And later, Bill explains why Carolyn Ellison's plea deal could put SBF away for life. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So, Bill, you have embarked on a end of year project to compile what you've been calling the SBF Chronicles. These are accounts of people who had a front row seat to the Sam Bankman free disaster, his distortions, his misrepresentations in the two years or so when he went from being kind of an unknown quantity in finance and on Wall Street to one of the wealthiest people in the world. He got his start as a former junior hedge fund guy. He founded this company FTX in 2019, I think. And before the company went belly up, he had like eight to $10 billion in customer assets. One of the people you talked to sort of at the peak of Sam's prominence and power was Laura Goldman. She was a, a former broker. She's now a television producer. And she interviewed SBF last September. So this is about 13 or 14 months before FTX collapsed and he was arrested. And the thing that stands out to me from that interview, which you shared part of it on Puck, what stands out to me really is like the hubris. Laura's asking him about policies that he could or, or should have around protecting customers from losing all their money, whether that's a hack or some unforeseen event. And he just sort of turns this question on its head and he basically says like, sure, look, we'd love to insure people's money, but the insurers don't understand crypto. The FDIC won't cover us. We're not setting aside money in case something goes wrong. And it was all sort of wrapped up in this righteous anti-establishment language. But the implication of what he's saying was basically, yeah, we're not going to protect these people. And at the end of the day, it's somebody else's fault. Yeah, I mean, it's really quite stunning, especially now that we know most of the rest of the story. We just don't know whether he's going to plead guilty or, or try to fight this in front of a jury. But going back and having this conversation taking place, you know, on the sidelines of the SALT conference in September 2021 is incredible. I mean, she's coming at it from the perspective of having been a broker and 
probably having among her brokerage clients older Americans who are concerned about their wealth and maintaining it and their nest eggs and want to make sure that it doesn't, you know, evaporate and it's enough to sustain them over the rest of their lives and also being curious and wanting to potentially invest in crypto. And so she goes at it in a number of different angles with uh, our buddy SBF. I mean, first they talk about that SIPIC, the securities industry self-insurance business, which uh, protects brokerage accounts up to like $500,000 if, you know, something happens, if there's fraud, not from bad investments, by the way, but from, you know, fraud. And this clearly is a fraud or seems to be. So there would be no protection in this case from SIPIC because these are not U.S. brokerage accounts, and they're not really brokerage accounts at all. And then, incredibly, he's talking about how, well, wouldn't it be nice if the FDIC insured people who did trade it on the crypto exchange, but they don't, so they won't do that. And, you know, maybe they could at some point if they really did a lot of work to try to understand what we're up to and, you know, the, the Fed got on board. And then she took it even further, which kind of blew me away and said, well, how about insurance? And then he says, well, insurance, as you said, insurance companies don't understand what we're doing here on the crypto exchange. And even if they did, they'd find some loophole to get out of paying, uh, you know, if there were any kind of fraud ever. And, and then she says, well, how, maybe you need to self-insure, Sam, you know, to provide self-insurance for your customers. And incredibly, he said, yes. That's a good idea. And we are doing some of that. We have a billion dollars in these various accounts that is designed to act as self-insurance. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit. I mean, John Ray III, the new CEO of FTX, should be asking Sam, where is that billion dollars that you put in these accounts to self-insure your customers for just this kind of eventuality, which, of course, you're acting like is never going to happen, even though when the time of this interview, you were doing. So the whole thing just like blew my mind. And it was incredible. I mean, either that money is somewhere and they haven't found it yet. God knows where it is or what was done with it. Or he was just lying through his teeth at the time that he said that. And in which case, you know, add it to the indictment. I mean, this is like feeling more and more like a slam dunk case. Of course, another lie he tells early on to Laura in this interview is he says, um, he wasn't really paying himself anything. He wasn't taking anything out of the company. All of his wealth is locked up in FTX. He's not liquid. But, you know, if you look at the SEC charges, I mean, prosecutors are saying this guy is lying through his teeth. I mean, you know, so he took billions out of this company in the form of loans that was collateralized against customer funds that he absconded with. Yeah, I mean, we know from the SEC lawsuit that he was given a, a billion dollar loan from Alameda and two of the other executives at Alameda were two. And where's that money? Uh, completely evaporated, uh, invested in, I guess, you know, these crazy Alameda investments. And then when the margin loans came a calling that for additional money that he had invested at Alameda or loans that were backed by, you know, the FTT token, which went down the tubes after CZ said he was thinking about selling their 500 million worth, <laughs> And he ransacks the FTX exchange for eight to 10 billion more, which is now basically, you know, evaporated. And, you know, Laura's sort of asking, I don't know where she came up with this stuff, but she's sort of asking him, like, what happens if there's fraud? What happens if the customer money disappears? I mean, how are you going to 
make sure. And I think she, again, she was taking it from the perspective of I'm a broker and I want to be able to represent to my clients that this is going to be a safe investment and they don't understand crypto, but feel like, you know, fear of missing out. Maybe they should get involved somehow, but it seems shady. And what are you doing that can protect my clients? And he's just, you know, saying, oh, don't, you know, it would never happen, you know, and if it does, we've got these things all arranged. And meanwhile, he's the one committing the fraud, taking their money. This was in September of 2021. It obviously was in full bloom then. And he's basically acting like, you know, nothing's going wrong. And like you said, Laura asked really good questions in the interview. You had a, a copy of it that you listened to and you used part of that in your reporting discussing this conversation that happened. I mean, good for Laura for, for asking those questions, but it's really all the more remarkable considering how few people at the time were pushing back on a lot of this stuff. And I wonder in retrospect how much you think that was because people in traditional finance didn't totally understand this stuff and they didn't want to look stupid or maybe they had their doubts, but they were worried about putting their own reputations on the line, betting against something that so many people were coalescing around this idea that Bitcoin was the future, FTX was the future, crypto was the future. People didn't want to come out and say it was a scam. A couple did and they were ridiculed. But I think if more people had been a little bit more forthright about that from the beginning, historical record probably would have proved them correct. This is like an age old scenario where they're really selling snake oil, but it sounds so incredible and you really don't understand it and you're afraid to say you don't understand it. Or or if you do come out and say you don't understand it, then you're going to be poo-pooed as a, like a, a Luddite, someone who's behind the times and you're living in the past, man. And, you know, you need to get with the exciting things that are happening now. And these are, you know, revolutionary things. So if you don't get with the program, then you've got this fear of missing out. And certainly all, all the venture capitalists that poured $1.8 billion into this thing clearly didn't do the due diligence that was necessary. Just decided, hey, you know, we get paid to put this money to work. And sure, some of these things aren't going to work out, but we've got to be involved in the ones that do. There's two or three more people coming in this uh, mini series who did see trouble coming and who tried to blow the whistle and tried to summon interest from the media to what they were saying. And it's really, really difficult because the business press was in full operational mode to put these people into hype. Sam Bankman-Fried, Fortune and Forbes, putting him on the cover, comparing him to the next Warren Buffett. It's just this cycle that we see all over and over again. We see it with Elon Musk. We've seen it so many times with Mark Zuckerberg. We've seen it over and over and over again where, you know, these people come along who seem like they're, you know, the prophets of some sort that we have to get on board with or get out of the way. And then the media gets all excited, puts them on the cover. You know, investors get excited by that and just don't do their due diligence. We've seen from the transcripts of the Sequoia investor meeting, you know, where Sam Bankman fried is playing video games, you know, remotely on Zoom during the investor meeting. And the principals at Sequoia are, you know, more excited by that than ever. And so having lived through so many of these, when you do try to warn people against this, I was just, you know, on CNBC before this and Scott Wapner read to me, and a piece that I'd written in the New York Times about Elon Musk 
four years ago, warning everybody about sort of this guy being totally out of control. What I wrote four years ago applied then, and it applies equally today. But, you know, I don't think people like to hear that. I think people like to do what they want to do. They like to get caught up in the hype. And if they lose money, then they lose money. And maybe they kind of enjoy that. You know, it's a great country. You can do those things if you want, even though they couldn't be more ridiculous. And you can see it coming when you get to be a certain age and you've lived through it enough times. Well, you know, as your friend Anthony Scaramucci was saying to you in the first installment of this series, you were talking to him about his relationship with Sam Bankman-Fried, which was sort of a mentor-mentee relationship. He said, look, you know, I, I made mistakes, but I liked the kid. That was his, his, his phrase. I liked the kid. He's a nice guy. I think a lot of people felt that. You know, they looked at this guy who was, um, who was unkempt, who was sort of bumbling, who was clearly very intellectual, but a little distracted. And there was a, a sort of a pattern matching that happened, especially in Silicon Valley, where he's, um, you know, he's sort of Einsteinian. He's impressive in his own way. And um, a lot of people weren't able to see past that. It's the killer resume, too. Physics major at MIT, parents, both Stanford law professors, Jane Street Capital, you know, making a, you know, a mini fortune, arbitraging, you know, the price of Bitcoin in various markets around the world, whether that even happened or not, you know, creating FTX. It, he was just offbeat and sort of nutty enough. And look, as you know, I interviewed him for the crypto documentary for 90 minutes a year ago, and I didn't ask him the kinds of questions that Laura Goldman did because I was being more narrative and trying to get his story on film, which which has happened. But, uh, you know, it's so easy to kind of get caught up in this, not even as an investor, but just, you know, as a journalist, the narrative, the story of Sam Bankman-Fried was completely seductive. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about Caroline Ellison, SBF's girlfriend and Alameda CEO, who just took a plea deal, testify against him. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky 
co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. We're back. Bill, why don't you think more people looked closely at Carolyn Ellison, the CEO of Alameda Research, which is sort of the, the sister institution, hedge fund to FTX. She reported to SBF, and according to her, she was following his orders not only to act as a market maker in the FTX exchange, which was, you know, taking some money from FTX customers, pennies at a time, in exchange for liquidity that they were providing, but also, according to her, illegally making huge bets with customers' deposits. And then, um, you know, essentially levering that, taking the fake digital assets as collateral to then give these giant loans to Sam, to his friends, that they were investing elsewhere in real estate around the Bahamas, I mean, this is a person who, you know, when you hear her talking, seems sort of clearly unqualified, but I'm surprised that nobody sounded the alarm there. Well, nobody sounded the alarm about any of it, Ben, obviously. As Anthony uh, Scaramucci was telling me, I mean, literally, whatever it was, a month or two before the collapse, he was taking SBF around to the Middle East to try to raise a fresh billion dollars at the same $32 billion valuation that the company raised money at in, in January. And, you know, with the senior people in, in the United Arab Emirates, MBS in Saudi Arabia, people were skeptical, but the vast majority of people were, were just believing all of this. Nobody was looking at him. No one was looking at Carolyn Ellison. No one was looking at anyone. There it was just like this wacky story just sort of like, you know, what that other crazy story in the Bahamas, the fire festival. I mean, you know, everybody was credulous about that. Let's go to the Bahamas and have a big party. And they get there and they discover it's a freaking disaster. Well, this was the, another version of that. Let's have this crypto party in the Bahamas. If it hadn't been for Sam Bankman Freed bad mouthing CZ on that trip to the Middle East, then that wouldn't have gotten back to CZ, who then decided, you know what, okay, the, you know, there's just fay here, SBF, I'm going to dump these $500 million of FTX tokens that you gave me in exchange for my equity position that I had in FTX early on, and that just sort of tanked the market. And, and then there was a run on the bank, literally a run on customers of FTX wanting to get their money back. Before that, you know, the, the House of Cards was... Uh, Standing beautifully, but you know, like the and uh, I'm not really mixing metaphors, but you know that one stick of the Jenga tower that you pull out, you know, at the bottom, uh, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. The U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York announced that Caroline Ellison and uh, Gary Wang, another FTX executive, had already cut a deal to testify against him. Do you have any guess as to what that testimony could mean? I mean, presumably they had just about as front row a seat, as you could imagine, to everything that happened here. Maybe he was trying to throw Gary and Caroline under the bus and all that, you know, in his guilty slash victory tour that he was doing before, you know, his arrest when he was talking to anybody with a heartbeat. Carolyn, in her plea agreement where she pled guilt and her 
whatever it was, affidavit or plea agreement that was released on a computer terminal and a lot of us could, could read it, said she knew what she was doing was wrong and she did it anyway and she was doing it at the behest of Sam Bankman fried I just think that this thought that the J.P. Morgan of the crypto industry, as he was titled earlier this year, as he was bailing out other companies in the crypto space that were getting into trouble, could somehow himself be, you know, a criminal mastermind was just more than people could possibly imagine. It was a much better story that this crazy mini Einstein looking guy worth $25 billion, the richest person under 30 with this funky looking girlfriend who also went to MIT and whose father was Gary Gensler's boss at MIT. I mean, you just couldn't really make any of this stuff. And the idea that somehow this would all just be a total fraud on a Madoff slash Enron-like scale is one can't even dare to imagine stories this outlandish, to be honest. You know, the, the last six months have given us both SBF implosion and Elon Musk implosion. I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of this year that Elon Musk was going to spend $44 billion on Twitter, a company that he did not need to own, that wasn't for sale, and that at the end of the year, literally six weeks after buying it, he would have imploded all $31 billion of the equity that he and his partners put in, plus another $6.5 billion worth of the value of the debt that his banks put in, I would have told you you were nuts. If you had told me that SBF was going to be, you know, in handcuffs and extradited to the U.S. to have to deal with his massive fraud that he perpetuated, I wouldn't have believed it. Truth is stranger than, than fiction. That's why I could never be a fiction writer, because, you know, the truth of what people do is infinitely more unbelievable than anything that could appear in fiction. Well, as they say, Bill, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 